Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 36 through 40. And then once you find that, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Picking up at verse 36, we find these words. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. He did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are, were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, this morning thanking you for another opportunity to enter your presence. We recognize that with our eyes we cannot see your glory, but with eyes of faith we believe what your word has said, that you dwell in unapproachable light and that you are a consuming fire. And so we don't take it for granted that you allow us to have an audience with you. We come before your throne, humbling, seeking your blessing upon our time, asking that from your everlasting throne that you would grant grace. Grace in the form of allowing your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, to make clear to us what it is that you want us to learn from your word, to cause us to turn from any ways that we have adopted that are contrary to the way that you would have us to go and to follow the path that leads to life, the path of Christ, and that you would conform us and transform us to his very image. Would you please move in our hearts today for your glory and for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So if you've been here at service or watching online for the last nine weeks, we've been following the faithful. 
And as you've been part of the sermon series, you have realized that there's something that we've discovered in this process of following the faithful, that the faithful are not always faithful. And ultimately, we find out that there's only really one true faithful one as we follow each person's life through the Old Testament, and that the really faithful one is God himself. And yet God still chooses to work through his people, though they're characterized and categorized among the faithful, even though they fail, he chooses to use them uh, for his glory. So this week and next week, we're going to look at one topic, and that is how do those who are attached to the faithful one respond to him in a right way because of his grace and faithfulness toward them? This week, we'll look at a woman. Next week, we'll look at a man. Well, the story we find this week transitions us out of the Old Testament, and we leave behind the years of Esther and Mordecai, which have long since perished into the dust. And we transition now into the New Testament era, specifically to the life of Jesus, as it is retold by the physician Luke, a text which we have looked at before. Now, based on the way that Luke has ordered his gospel, it appears as though at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's still in the city of Nain. This was a city in which when he was entering, there was a funeral procession that was leaving the city. A woman had lost her only son, and he was being carried out. Not only was that grief, but there was uh, social and economic ramifications to her losing her only son. Jesus, having compassion on her, stopped the funeral, and at that time gave her son back to her because he raised him from the dead. And we can imagine in a small town where news gets around fast of what Jesus' reputation was at that time. And this forms for us what might have been the potential backdrop of what caused Simon to want to invite Jesus to his home. Here had been this traveling rabbi going from place to place, teaching and speaking about God and doing miracles. And none other than in his own city, someone had been raised from the dead. As a Bible reader, as a Bible memorizer, as one who knew scripture and most likely could have quoted it from memory, would have thought about the days of Elijah and Elisha, where the prophets of God stood among them and raised them from the dead. And here was this Jesus who had done something similar. Perhaps a prophet of God had returned, which most likely had piqued Simon's curiosity. And what better way to get to know him than around a meal? And so he invited him to his home. But what Simon was not prepared for as a Pharisee was what for what was going to happen and transpire at that meal that often surrounded Jesus because of the way he conducted his life. An unexpected guest arrived, not only unexpected, but uninvited, and as we see the text play out, unwanted. It was a woman who had a well-known reputation in town and not a good reputation, might I add. And one of the cultural rules of the day that Simon understood and everyone understood was that people like Simon, a Pharisee, didn't associate with people like this woman. And to make matters worse, when she entered, she didn't obey the cultural rules that was understood by everyone. She could be there, but she wasn't to interrupt the meal. She was to stand by on the sides and watch what was going on and listen, which most likely for those who were seeking to be religious and faithful to the law would have felt uncomfortable by her presence as she would have been declared or viewed as one who was unclean and might contaminate them. 
And so just her being in the room would have left some uncomfortability. But she went further and did something more to make them all the more uncomfortable. As she engaged in what was most likely in Simon's mind and those who were dining around the table and perhaps some of the other guests who were watching, questionable, questionable behavior in light of her reputation that she had uh, garnered over the years uh, living in that town and by her actions. And what made matters worse for her was that she directed her actions solely towards one person at the table, the guest of honor, Jesus, the traveling rabbi. Now, we find out from the text this is going to pose a significant problem for this devout Pharisee named Simon, because this woman who has a bad reputation, who is uh, otherwise ritually unclean, is going to break not only cultural norms, but she's going to do something that's extremely offensive in public at least for women of that day. She lets down her hair. Now, in our culture, that would have been nothing. We think nothing of that if a woman hairs her hair up and she's somewhere in public and decides to rearrange herself and lets her hair down. We don't even pay a bad an eye to it. But in their culture, it was a no-no. See, only a woman with loose morals would let her hair down to be observed by men in which she might serve as a temptress to them. Proper and godly women kept their hair up and they kept it covered so as not to tempt men to sin. But she let her hair down. And this highly inappropriate behavior for them and their culture was most likely extremely detestable to Simon. And Jesus let her touch him. And not only did he let her touch him, but he did not stop her from what she was doing. And after Simon sitting and observing Jesus and watching what was going on, he reasoned in his mind, there's no way that this man could be a prophet and let a woman like this touch him. But Jesus actually proves to be so much more than a prophet. I want to make two observations from the text today that speak to this idea of how we can have an appropriate response to God as those who are faithful. This week we'll cover the first half and next week we'll finish off with the other half. Here's the first observation from the text for this week. Seeing the magnitude of our sin will help us appreciate the overwhelming generosity of God's grace. Let me say that again. Seeing the magnitude of our sin will help us appreciate the overwhelming generosity of God's grace. So what's going on with this woman in the text that would cause her to leap over cultural fences? We have those in our culture, too, and we know when we bump up against them, we see the looks in people's eyes, and that keeps us in check. But what would cause her to lose her inhibition? Nowhere in the text do we find the mention of alcohol. No, that, that's not what's going on. I believe there's something else. And we see the answer in verse 38. And notice what the text says. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. See, contrary to Simon's interpretation, there's something else going on because there's this key piece of information that he's not incorporated into his interpretation of the events. And we understand why Simon is doing that because Simon is a devout Pharisee and he's looking at the world through that lens. 
but he misses something that's important that would tell him that his interpretation of the events are incorrect. Now, we don't know why she originally came there, what she intended to do in her original plans. Had she just simply shown up to anoint Jesus' head? Was she there to present this gift that had been around her neck, this expensive gift to give to Jesus, perhaps to, to sell to the poor and to distribute it in his ministry? We don't know. But what we do know is that as she approached Jesus' feet, she was overcome with emotion. And the emotion was so strong in her that she could not control herself and it brought her to her knees. And she ultimately fulfills what the humble household slave would have done as she cleanses the feet of Jesus. But notice, she didn't come, come prepared for this. It was not what she intended to do. And so she could only use the tools available to her at the time. What did she have available? Her tears and her hair. Have you ever been in a situation like that in your own life in which uh, your emotion was so great that you thought that you would react one way when in, in reality, because of the emotion that was pent up inside of you, when confronted with the situation, you could not help yourself but to respond in a way that you had not planned. I remember it happened to me when I was about 14 years old and I was standing in front of the church one, one night and I just intended to get up and, and say something to my parents, but the emotion was so strong, I could not contain and keep myself from weeping even though I desired not to do it. That's the kind of emotion that this woman is feeling. She's not in control any longer. And thus she could not re, uh, keep her composure and resist the urge to shed tears. Now, some of the potential societal realities might help us to understand the gravity of this emotion of what she experienced in this text. Now, we can't say for sure what her sins were because Luke doesn't tell us. And perhaps he does that to show grace to her. But a couple of clues in the text might lead us to the conclusion of what her occupation was. Notice the characterization of her. She has a reputation in the city. And in light of the fact of she's carrying perfume around her neck, we have a good guess. In light of the limited options that were available to women, what might have been her profession? Now, I grew up with three sisters, and I'm currently having the benefit of the opportunity to raise a daughter. In none of those cases, and I, I can't imagine, even though there's some cultural differences, that girls back during that time dreamed of growing up and aspiring to pursue this type of lifestyle. It was probably not an aspiration on her radar, but most likely because of societal factors that played in, she ended up in this situation. Perhaps for her, it was the, the untimely death of a husband early on in life, and because she was poor, she could not afford to care for herself or have another option in life. She turned to this to provide for herself. Or perhaps even worse, it was her family's financial debt and her, and her parents, because she was a woman and a girl, she had less value than boys, and in light of that, they sold her into slavery to pay their debt. That might have been the case. Whatever the situation was, we know that most likely this woman had been used, perhaps even on occasion, abused. And probably she had grown accustomed to be being viewed and treated with very little value and by those who were religious around her, outright rejected. 
When you experience those kind of things in life, it has a way of making you feel trapped. You feel like there's no way out, that your sins won't let you go, and God will never, ever accept you. And then there was probably all of those reminders from the religious who were around her that reaffirmed this view for her in her daily life as they repeatedly distanced themselves when she came around. But the Lord Jesus, he doesn't leave us in the dark about this woman's emotional state and what her motives are. He peers into her and brings it out so that Simon might interpret the events rightly. We pick back up in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. It is from this short story that the picture now becomes clear, at least to us as the readers. The woman has come to pay gratitude, to show thanks to Jesus because he had forgiven her for her many sins. And the reason that even though she's overcome with emotions, uh, it is the reason why she does not care about the circumstances of what other people's opinions are of her because her gratitude is so great that it drives her to her needs. Now, based on the tense of the verb in verse 47, we realize that most likely this forgiveness is not happening in this scene. But somewhere prior, Jesus had encountered this woman and there had been a transaction that had happened between Jesus and the woman in which he forgave her sins. And for her, this would have been overwhelming in light of the fact of the disapproval she had received in society as she was aware most likely of her sins because everybody else was aware of them. And she knew them well. And they had reminded her probably with every look of disapproval and every time she came around there was the quiet whisper of her name and the pulling close of their daughter because they didn't want them to be influenced by her. She was probably painfully aware of her unworthiness before God. And yet from all of this, the one that she would have thought would have acted like the others, the one who was God's prophet, the one who had raised someone from the dead, would have treated her in the same way. But that's not how he did. He was different. Just what he had said right before this text, Jesus, a friend of sinners. And in him, she didn't find rejection, but she found grace and acceptance and forgiveness. And because of that, she was set free from all that had happened in her past, all the wrongs she had done, all the things, the bad decisions she had made to take care of herself. She was set free and given a new clean slate. And now she found out that God was willing to accept her and to give her a fresh start on life. And that all came through Jesus's ministry. And her appreciation for the grace that Jesus extended to her as Messiah, as prophet, when everyone rejected her, was too much emotion to keep bottled up inside and to keep her composure for the sake of pleasing others in society. She could not contain it, and so she wept, not out of grief, but out of gratitude, because a divine pardon had been received. When we are aware of the magnitude of our sin, then we appreciate the immense generosity Jesus shows us when he forgives our sins. 
And this causes us to have the right response, which is a humble thankfulness to the Lord Jesus when he sets us free from all that had chained us down. It comes out in our prayers as we give thanks to God. It comes out in the way we honor the Lord. It comes out in the gracious way we treat others who are made in his image. See, because the reality is sometimes we don't treat other people well because we've lost sight of what God has forgiven us for. Some kind of way we began to, to view ourselves as a little bit better than what we really are and our sin becomes small and so grace, God's grace looks little and other people's sin looks big and so we struggle to let them go because their thing looks big and God's grace looks small. But this text reminds us that God's grace is so much greater because our sin was great. And so I ask you today, do you see the signs of thankfulness in your life during this season? Or do you find yourself complaining about the current circumstances you're in? So the story is told about a Scottish minister by the name of Alex White. He was known for at his church always finding a reason to give thanks for God. On this particular Sunday, the weather was overcast. It was a gloomy day. And so one of the parishioners said to himself, there's no way that Pastor White will find something good to say on a dreadful day like this. But he was wrong. When Pastor White opened up that day to pray, he said this, we thank thee, O God, that it's not always like this. See, the pastor's heart was right toward God, and what flowed from a thankful heart was thankful speech. See, as we know, a number of verses of the New Testament encourage us to be thankful that that's the right heart posture for the believer in light of what God has done. Notice what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then to the Colossians, he says this in verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one, one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, reaching teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We see other passages like this later on in the letter in chapter 4, verse 2. Paul talks about giving thanks. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul talks about giving thanks. In 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, Paul talks about giving thanks. In 2 Corinthians 4, 15, Paul talks about giving thanks. See, gratitude is the right attitude toward God for what he has done for us. That brings me to the second observation I want to make from this text. And that is the wrong way to respond to Jesus. That is this, not seeing the magnitude of our sin blinds us to the need for God's grace. See, not seeing the magnitude of our sin blinds us to the need for, to, sorry, to our need for God's grace. So we look back at the text and we notice that Simon has invited Jesus to dinner because he views him as a prophet, even calls him a teacher, a term of respect. But once the woman enters the scene, of course, uh, Simon's view of Jesus turns decidedly to the negative. And it's in response to this that Jesus then interacts with Simon to let him know that he really is a prophet and actually something much more as he engages Simon's private thoughts. Notice the way the text phrases it. Jesus answered. 
But when you search the text, there's nowhere in here where it mentions that Simon says anything verbally or out loud. Who is Jesus answering? He's answering Simon's thoughts. And he goes on to prove not only is he a prophet, but he's so much more at the end of the text when he exercises the right that only God can exercise. He forgives a human of sins. See, Jesus wants Simon to rethink about the way that he's seeing the world and to adjust it to a new view. And notice how Jesus repaints the picture for Simon so that he might grasp what is going on. In the story that Jesus told, notice there's not one, but two debtors. We can kind of figure out who the parties are. We know that the moneylender most often is a reference to God. And here, because there was an overlap between the two words and the way they were used, and the, the shade of meaning could either fall on the side of a financial debt or on the side of a sin, and the same word was used, uh, it's a play on words that's happening in the text. Here, there's one debtor who owes 500, that is about a year and a half's worth of wages, and we know who that is in the text. That's the woman. But there's another debtor in the text. Notice they owe about a month and a half's wages. And they can't pay either. And need forgiveness just like the other. Who's that person? It's Simon. Now we know from the text in the way it, it plays out that Simon either is viewing his debt as small or maybe that's the reality of what's going on. He hasn't committed as much sin as she has. But at least probably in his view, he views himself as morally superior to the woman that he's viewing. But he's missed something in doing that, that he can't pay either. And because he can't pay either, he's in need of the same kind of grace that she was in need of. But because he doesn't see his need, because he views his sin as small, he does not seek the answer that she does and find divine pardon. And it's to this that Jesus confronts him directly. Let me rehearse the verses for you. Go back to verse 44, and we'll look at Jesus address Simon directly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the, her, her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Notice the contrast that Jesus points out for Simon. Contrast that what should have uh, been notable for Simon and something he should have known to do in honoring a guest, especially a traveling rabbi like Jesus. Here the contrast that we see in the text. Simon could have easily have provided water. He seems to be a man of means as he hosts a dinner at his house. He could have had one of his servants provide water to wash Jesus' feet, which would have been customary of the day. He doesn't provide water. But the woman, she comes with no water. And where does she get the water for? from? She produces it from her own body, her tears. Simon could have easily had a towel brought to wipe the dirt that was remaining from the towel from Jesus' feet so that his feet would be cleaned. From traveling through the days of that days, they didn't have sanitation and waste management to pick up trash. So easily your feet could get dirty. But here, 
He doesn't produce a towel. But the woman, she doesn't have a towel. What does she use? The only thing she has available to her. And she thinks it not too much to be able, too little to do to show Jesus honor. She takes her own hair and cleans the dirt from his feet. Notice what Simon does. Simon doesn't, when Jesus showed up, we find out here from Luke's account, there was no customary greeting of a kiss on the cheek when Jesus entered the home of Simon, as would have been done in Middle Eastern culture at that time. But this woman, she doesn't kiss his cheek. She kisses his feet repeatedly the whole time that she's there, honoring him, showing reverence and respect and gratitude. Simon could have anointed his head with cheap olive oil just to show him how much he appreciated Jesus being in the presence, but that's not what he does. But the woman, she takes probably the most expensive item she has and pours it on Jesus' feet and reserves none for herself. She gives all that she has. What we see here in the text, if I could put it in modern terms, is Jesus is giving Simon a job evaluation. But, but he does something that we don't normally do in job evaluations. He grades the other person in, the, in his presence. And what he says to them is, Simon, your job evaluation, let me tell you what I think of it. You do not meet expectations. But this woman over here, the one you discounted, she's exceeded expectations. That, that, that's what's going on in the text. And that says to me then, as long as I look at myself as not that bad, I'm not really that evil. I'm really not that sinful. As long as I view myself in that light, then I will never come to Jesus to ask for the forgiveness that he offers. See, we have to grapple with the reality of our sin or we'll never see God's gracious forgiveness as something we desperately need and humbly come before Jesus and ask him to set us free. See, sin is, is tricky. It has a way of blinding us to the reality of how bad we are and we remain self-deceived. And so we have to ask God, Lord, open up my spiritual eyes so that I might see myself rightly before you and in seeing myself as ugly as that picture is, that will make me reach out for your grace. Now, there's a flip side to this, and I appreciate this because Pat brought this out. Some of us, we look at ourselves and we see ourselves, and then we start to say just the opposite. I'm too bad for God to forgive me, but notice what the text says. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. That's why they sing that song that there is no amount of sin in which God's grace cannot cover. Paul said, as sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's a story told about a, a Spanish family in which a father and a son had, had not seen eye to eye, and the son had made some actions and done some things that left his father's relationship uh, tenuous at best, and they became estranged over the years. And, and, and so then the, the son thought that the only thing that he could do was to run away from home. 
And the father, because he, he loved his son, sought his son out uh, in the city of Madrid. And, and, and because it had been months and he was searching, he could not find his son. He became desperate and decided, the only way that I could possibly reach my son is through the, the Madrid newspaper of the day. And so he put an ad in and it said this. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. When the father showed up that Saturday at noon to look for his son, hoping that his son would be there, he found something he didn't expect. 800 Pacos were there looking to restore their relationship with their father. Brothers and sisters, when we see our need for God's grace, when he extends it, we'll reach out for it. That's what this text says to us. Let me give you a couple of ways of application before we close the message out. Perhaps you're here today and you're saying, I am a Christian, and what about me? My sins have been forgiven. I have pleaded the blood of Jesus Christ. I've received a divine pardon, and yet I still struggle with a sense of gratitude for what Jesus did for me. I, I no longer feel that sense of gratitude. And maybe you found yourself in the place that Peter talks about in his second letter, the first chapter, where he says we become blind and short-sighted when we forget what God has done for us in forgiving our sins. We become short-sighted in that way. Let me offer to you a practical suggestion that I've used in my own life at different parts in my years. My wife, we talked about it. She was like, I don't know that people do, will be willing to do that. I said, well, it's, it's helped me. I'll just share with them. They can do what they want with it. So sometimes what I've done in my life is when I felt that I, I'm not as grateful anymore for what Jesus has done. I, I've taken time and I sat down and I said to the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to what it is that you actually freed me from. And I sat down with a piece of paper and I just began to write down line by line the sins that I've committed. And I just began to just think about as far back as I go, go every sin that I've done. Then you look up in the scriptures and you begin to look and see what did the scriptures say? If I had been under the law, what would have been the consequences for those sins? And for many of the sins in my own life, I realized that at the other end of that consequence, you know what it said? Death. That would have been the, the consequence for the sin that I had committed. And as I read through that, then I, I, I then turn over to the Gospels and I, I read about what Jesus did for me. And then I go back and I write over every sin forgiven because of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that has a way of working in my heart and letting me know that I'm, I am where I am, not because of what I've done, but because God is so gracious. Because I realize the magnitude of my sin and I see how generous God has been. Now, perhaps you're not there. You're in another place. You say, I, I, I've got that. But just every now and then, I just need a little refresher. But I'll, I'll offer to you what my wife has put into practice in her own life. What my wife has done is this. She takes time and every day at the end of the day, every night, she's started a prayer journal. She's been doing that for about a year now. And it's a thankfulness journal. And in this journal, every night, she sits down and reviews the day and writes what she's thankful for what God has done that day. And in times when she doesn't feel like she's thankful, she just flips back through the pages and she sees God's faithfulness. And it just brings her to her knees because God has shown himself faithful. I'm not sure what it will be for you, but whatever it is, don't forget what God has done. So the story is told about this one farmer who uh, happened in this particular year because uh, Christmas had fallen on the Sunday. He felt the sense of obligation. Christmas is Sunday. 
I should probably go to church. Uh, you know, there are people like that who believe that the only time to go to church really is on Christmas and Easter. You may have some family members who feel that way. And on this particular day, the farmer said, you know, it's Sunday, it's Christmas, I should go to church. And so he went to church, and that day in his particular location, the pastor preached a sermon on Isaiah 1-3. And this is what that text says. The ox knows its own owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people does not understand. Isaiah is saying that the people are so spiritually blind that the animals have more wisdom in this matter than they do. To be grateful to the master for what has been provided. So after church, the farmer went home and he was doing his normal task of finishing up, taking care of the cows for that day. And as he was standing there contemplating what he had heard in church, one of the cows walked up and just licked his hand. And as the cow licked his hand, he began to think to himself about what the sermon had been about and how this was just a, a right now illustration of exactly what he had just heard in church. And though he had been a strong man in life, he couldn't help but start to weep as he said to himself, God has done so much more for me and I have not thanked him. And yet this cow that I own seems to show more gratitude. And all I've ever done for this cow is provide grass and water. Brothers and sisters, God has provided so much more for us than grass and water. And when you remember that, give him thanks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, uh, rea the, rea the realization and the reality of your kindness toward us, an undeserved kindness, a, a gifting that we call grace. Lord, when we consider ourselves, in, in light of what your word says, in, in the light of your uh, perfect, unmatched character, we see our failings, our shortcomings, our flaws. But then we look to the cross. We don't beat ourselves up. We recognize it, and, and thus we cling to Jesus, thanking him that he did what we could not do. And so our sins no longer hold us bound, but we've been set free. Set free, as Paul said, from the slave master of sin. But now, Lord, we want to be slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. And we want to yield our members for his service, just like this woman, humble before you, God, willing to do whatever we can to show you how much we appreciate what you have done for us. You deserve the glory. You deserve the praise. You deserve all of the honor. And we want you to know that we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.